And I think there's something about that pattern of history that is pretty consistent, that the, the ones who are creating the most change are often those who come at it from these unlikely places, starting small and creating something much larger. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My name is Benjamin Quinn. And I'm Nathaniel Williams. In today's episode, I will talk with Dr. Finney Caravilla about faith, finance, and much more. You will not want to miss that. It was a fascinating conversation. After that, we'll have another edition of On My Bookshelf. And in just a moment, we'll have our segment called Headlines, in which we will look at some aspect of the headlines, such as news, sports, pop culture, or business from a Christian perspective. But first, we have some exciting news for you podcast listeners. We only have a few more episodes in season three of the podcast. That's not the exciting news. That's kind of the sad news. But we thought with the podcast season winding down, why not have a giveaway to celebrate? That's so a great Dr. way to wind down, Nathaniel. I think, that's uh, I think everybody likes a good giveaway. Everybody likes free stuff. Uh, and so with this giveaway, we want to hear your feedback on the podcast. We're three seasons in, and uh, we love to hear from our listeners to hear what you enjoy, what you don't, and uh, what we could do better at. So click the link in the show notes, follow the link there, give us your thoughts on the podcast, vote for your favorite episode of the season. And when you do all that, you could be entered to win a stack of books and some other Center for Faith and Culture swag. We've got a mug, we've got some pins. Uh, and a whole stack of books. So follow the link in the show notes, uh, give us your thoughts, vote for your favorite episode, and be entered to win a whole stack of Center for Faith and Culture swag and books. I'm glad that you mentioned the swag. I was afraid you were going to say tickets to a Georgia football game, which no one cares about. Everybody so actually. The more, the more applicable yeah. and relevant well. CFC swag. <laughs> okay. And now let's go to our headlines. We've been joking a lot, Dr. Quinn, but but we 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 do want to reflect on some serious news. Uh, Tim Keller, of course, passed away last week. Now, uh, for our listeners, I'm sure Tim Keller needs no introduction. But Dr. Quinn, how will you remember Tim Keller? Yeah, so for those, perhaps some don't um, know who Tim Keller was, but Tim, uh, among many things, was pastor, a founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. I believe they founded the church there in 1989. And to, to say that his ministry was impactful in New York City and beyond would be a drastic understatement. Tim Keller, as Russell Moore, I heard him saying this morning, in fact, um, says that Tim Keller is the greatest evangelist of the late 20th century since Billy Graham. And he's very careful to use the word evangelist, not just evangelical, but evangelist, not in the same way as someone like Billy Graham, who holds large crusades and that kind of thing, but as, as really kind of a Christian public intellectual who's also a very careful apologist by way of evangelism. Um, he was extremely faithful in his personal life, public life, and ministry, whether he was sitting down to coffee with a skeptic or an atheist or someone of a different religion, uh, if he was doing that in a one-on-one, one-on-two kind of context, or if he were talking to university students in a public forum. He was incredibly faithful to the gospel, a brilliant man, brilliant, both in terms of speaking and writing. You asked how I will remember uh, Dr. Keller, uh, when I was early in seminary is when I began to to hear about what, what Tim was doing in New York. 
uh, through his not only through his church but also his impact on church planting, which he had a massive impact on. I think at least for me, before I knew him as as apologist, I think I knew him as kind of church planting pioneer in many ways. Uh, he wrote a book called Center Church, which is kind of a church planting manual. <clears throat> it was massively influential for a lot of friends that I that I still have who planted churches some years ago and continues to be just a remarkable blueprint for planting gospel-centered, Christ-centered, faithful churches. I think, though, in terms of my own just kind of personal experience with Dr. Keller, I, I didn't have the chance to meet Dr. Keller personally, but have known a number of people who did know him relatively well. And I think when I read his Prodigal God, that's one of his many books. He has a book on uh, his reasons for God. It's probably his best known, but he has a book called Prodigal God, which is sort of his telling and retelling of the the prodigal son story uh, out of the Gospel of Luke. He also has a book on on marriage. He has a, a book recently on forgiveness and a handful of others, and all of them are worth reading. It's fascinating, by the way, that Tim Keller passed away at 72 years old. He didn't write anything until he was uh, until 15 years ago. About 15 years ago is really when he started his writing ministry. And to have had that kind of impact really kind of later in life is just amazing to me. Uh, but his prodigal God is what sticks out to me because I think that I think that gets at the very heart of what Tim Keller preached and spoke about so well. He he was probably the best I've ever seen and ever heard at, at dividing the difference and articulating the difference between religion and gospel. Uh, just this week, as, as a lot of people have been tweeting and Facebooking comments from Keller, I saw someone had tweeted a, uh, an image of Keller with a quote associated with it where he said, religious people find God useful Christians find God beautiful. And I just mm. I just think that mm. captures so well. And I was reminded of, of how he talked about uh, the prodigal son story in that prodigal God book. Um, so there's so many things we could say about Dr. Keller, but church planting impacts um, just his faithfulness as, as an apologist and an evangelist, um, but then also the way that he dissected religion from true gospel-centered faith was, was just a remarkable gift to God's people. What has faith to do with finances? I suspect many of you as our listeners are curious about that, and maybe you have favorite podcasts that you listen to or people that you like to read on these matters. Today, we are delighted to have with us Dr. Finney Curavilla. Dr. Curavilla serves as the co-chief investment officer as well as senior portfolio manager for Eventide Strategic Growth Strategies and Healthcare and Life Science Strategies, as well as managing director for Eventide's private investing line of business and founding member of Eventide. Quite a lot of stuff going on there. Dr. Curavilla holds an MD from Harvard Medical School, a PhD in chemistry and chemical biology from Harvard University, an SM in electrical engineering and computer science from MIT, as well as a Bachelor of Science in chemistry from Caltech. Let's just say that you've gone to school a lot and for mm -hmm. a long time to do a lot of different things. Um, Dr. Curavilla, thank you for being with us today. It's great to be with you. So my first question is, how do you go from an MD, PhD in uh, science and engineering and all the different kind of science and medical background that you have, how do you go from that to overseeing Eventide investment and finance portfolios? How do you do this? Yeah, so when I was in medical school, I had a small stipend that I was on. This was in the mid-90s. It started in 1995. And uh, it was about $10,000 a year, so not a lot, but enough to live on if you're a single guy. 
which I was at the time. And I was talking to my mom one day. She was a huge inspiration in my life. And she said, well, hey, you want to one day be able to own a home, right? And I said, yeah, I do. And she said, well, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to put down a deposit to get a mortgage on a home. You basically have nothing right now. Start investing. Yeah. And so that made sense to me. And she said, look at mutual funds as an option for how you can begin to uh, plunge into the world of investing. And so you can get what's called a fact sheet on a mutual fund. So mm -hmm. it's a one pager that gives you the highlights of the fund and what it's like, what it's composed of. And on one of those columns, it'll be the top 10 holdings of the fund. And so I would look at various mutual funds and you would see tobacco companies, you would see gambling companies, you would see just different types of companies that yeah. you're like, ah, I don't know if I really want to put my money there. It just yeah. doesn't feel like as a Christian, we want to be profiting from exploiting other people and preying on the sinful nature. Yeah. And so I couldn't get myself to do that uh, just out of Christian convictions. My roommate at the time was doing his PhD at Harvard in economics. His name was Bill. And Bill gave me a book by a guy named Peter Lynch. Peter Lynch was a very successful fund manager from Fidelity, also in Boston. Mm -hmm. And he said, he tells you how to learn how to invest in this and what are the key principles. And so one of the things that I did was I, I said, okay, well, if, if I can learn to invest, then I don't need to use a mutual fund and I can start to invest on my own. And Peter Lynch has this, I think, very brilliant concept, which is that most people who are in finance are accountants and generalists and don't really have any specific domain expertise. Mm -hmm. yeah. What Peter Lynch advocates, he says, if you can learn the, the general basics of accounting, which isn't that hard, and you have deep domain expertise, like you really know a field better than others, mm -hmm. if you marry the two, you would have a significant advantage over, over Wall Street. And so I read it and basically said, well, I have some expertise in mm -hmm. healthcare. I'm doing an MD-PhD and I'm at least at the graduate level there. Why not start to invest in that? And so I did just with my own money over the next 10-ish years and found that I enjoyed it, was, was doing relatively well in it. And one, as I finished my med school and residency and fellowship and a postdoc, I did a pretty long training even after school, said, what am I going to do with my life now? And at that point, decided that I was going to try to start a company, uh, which became Eventide, as a place for other Christians who similarly wanted their faith to be aligned with their values yeah. and to be able to, to make an impact um, on their on themselves, first and foremost, that they, that they know that they're living a basic life of integrity with respect to their finances, but then also to deploy capital to advance the common good as yeah. opposed to prey on, on individuals. So this is the mid-90s. Were you doing your MD at that time or PhD, or were you doing them simultaneously? It's, it's interleaved. The way it works is you do two years of med school, you do your whole PhD, gotcha. which is four or five years, and then you, you do back go back and do your last two years. Gotcha. So it's a, typically about eight years, eight to nine years long. So your mom challenged you with... Finney, you want to buy a house one day, and you're like, yes, I do. I make $10,000 a year right now, eating a lot of ramen noodles and yep. whatever you're doing. Um, and that kind of launches you in, as a Christian, to thinking carefully about how you're investing money. Let me back up. So when did you become a Christian? What was your upbringing? Yeah, I, so I had two very faithful parents. Uh, my parents immigrated to the United States in 1973. I was born and raised in Southern California in the L.A. area. And um, my, my father worked for World Vision. It's a Christian humanitarian mm -hmm. agency. And also went to Fuller Seminary, did his MDiv there, and did pastoral work. And eventually moved back to India 
in the mid to late 80s. And so I'd often go with him and travel with him. What part of India? To North India, okay. uh, to an area that's very unreached. It's yeah. an area near the Ganges River, which is kind of the Hindu holy yeah. river. And so so I grew up as an, as an MK, a missionary kid traveling all over. And I still won't forget the day where this happened. I was sitting in my room once in California, and I was reading, it was two Bible passages. It was John 15, the vine and branches passage, and Romans 8, the one that says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, uh, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It just hit me like a bolt of electricity. It was my senior year of college, and I remember being in my room just getting it. And it's funny how you can read things again and again, and all of a sudden something just happens. And I remember getting in my room and I was just like jumping up and down with excitement, almost dancing because I was so excited at this personal appreciation and experience of the love of God. Mm. So that was my, my, my moment there. I was baptized a couple of years later, but that was the, the turning point in my life. And I'm very faithful for what my parents did because they modeled sacrifice. He had yeah. a, a great job at World Vision and gave that up for the unknown of what would it be to start a Bible school training center and church planning center in, in a very difficult part of North India. Yeah. So you go to Harvard to do what well, you did. You went to Caltech, then you go to Harvard for this MDiv PhD combination. Yeah, MD, yeah. Mm-hmm. M, that's right. MD, I said MDiv. Yeah. I'm so used to that yeah. <laughs> nomenclature. But the MD PhD combo, mm-hmm. and then it's you, you said it's your mom challenging you about prepare to buy a house one day that eventually leads you to read the Lynch book. Eventually you decide to start a company. But what were you what were you planning to do with your degrees from Harvard? I thought I was going to become a professor and be a researcher. And I actually had an offer after it was all done to join uh, on, on staff at Mass General Hospital and Harvard Med School, mm-hmm. one of the one of the big hospitals in the area. And it, it would have been my dream job, I thought, if you had if somebody had told me, hey, at the end of this you're going to get I would have been like, whoa, that's yeah. amazing. But as you, as you go through your education, you get to see how the world works and you get to know yourself better yeah, in ways right. that you, you didn't know. And frankly, one of the things that Andy Crouch talks about this a lot in, in his writings that you can join a big institution like, like a Harvard or a Yale or someplace like that. And, and I think for a lot of people, that's a good thing for them to do. I'm not, I would not knock someone who chooses to do that. But what what James Davison Hunter and Andy Crouch and people, other people would say is if you really want to change the culture, yeah. you got to start organizations and create new culture in order to actually induce formation. Yeah. Because the big institutions, don't, they just resist change. Yeah. And I don't care if you're the president of Harvard, you're not going to change Harvard, yeah. uh, much less if you're junior faculty or a student there. And so often I meet with people who are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and they think, I'm going to go to Goldman Sachs, I'm going to go to Coca-Cola, and I'm going to change that institution for God. And I think like, okay, good luck. Um, but it's, it's, it's a little bit like when you talk to a five-year-old who says he's going to play in the NBA, you think like, okay, probably not, right? <laughs> right. Um, that, that there's a much more sensible, plausible path to change, which involves starting small. Mm. And I actually think there's something biblical in this, that there's something about the Jesus way, which is... It doesn't seem like in general the, the establishment is where the action is in the Old and New Testaments. Mm. I mean, if you look at, at Elijah, if you look at most of the prophets in the Old Testament, they're, they're not part of the, the mainstream yeah. standard status quo, right? Yeah. And same thing when you look in the New Testament, it begins with John the Baptist, this crazy guy out in the Judean wilderness who's yeah. not part of the establishment. And I think there's something about that pattern of history 
that is pretty consistent that the, the ones who are creating the most change are often those who come at it from these unlikely places, starting small and creating something much larger. You think about, again, John Wesley. People, There's so many examples of, yeah, of this absolutely. That, that we see throughout history. I love that. And, and thought about it quite that way, that establishment is not where the action is. Right. The, and that, that's very true. I mean, even think about, we won't go too far here, but even think about the work of Christ, the new covenant, uh, the new and better way, and a lot of newness with respect to the very work of Christ and then those who follow him. Uh, plug on plug for two books that you've subtly mentioned, one being Culture Making by Andy Crouch, right. which I've actually assigned for a class this semester, and another, you said The Jesus Way. I don't know if you meant for that to be a Eugene Peterson plug, but a book by Eugene Peterson called The Jesus Way that is, is one of my favorites as well. And a third book, To Change the World by James. Yes, that's right. James, right. I forgot about that book. Right. So I want to come back to, tell us about Eventide. So what is it? What do you guys do? Just kind of give us the heart. Yeah, so we are a, a, a mutual fund company. Primarily, we have some other lines there, but most of what we do is mutual funds, which are the, the vehicles that ordinary most people invest in in their 401ks and personal accounts. Uh, we are a values-based company. We serve uh, a lot of faith-based clients, uh, primarily Protestant Christians although we're open to Catholics, Orthodox, Jews, you name it. And we started with the vision that capital is a very powerful way to, one, align a person's own heart with the, the, the right purposes. So uh, we can maybe come back to that later. But in general, a lot of people live this kind of divided life where they don't really know what's going on with their money. And they almost might even have some qualms about what's going on with their money. We sometimes use the analogy of a mafia wife where you think about the mafia wife and she's got this great lifestyle, the diamond rings and the fur coats and all that. And she knows something shady is going on on the other <laughs> side of the door, but she doesn't want to ask too many questions yeah. because she likes her life, right? Yeah. And that's not a good way to live. We, we want to be able to say, I have transparency and I know what I own and I know and I can feel good about it mm. as opposed to, oh, I'm just not going to ask too many questions about what's happening there. Yeah. And most people in America just don't even know what they own. They have no idea. They've got 401ks and 403bs and 529s and all these things, and they just don't know. Yeah. And that doesn't seem like a very transparent, healthy way to live is where yeah. you, you don't actually even know the basics of what you own. So that's, that's one key element in this. And the second is that in order to be effective at the redemptive good, one should be very, very um, active in the common good. In other words, that like the common good is almost like a platform to establish credibility so that you can speak into redemptive issues. Mm -hmm. And one of the, the main challenges I think that especially the Western Protestant evangelical church has faced is there's been this divide between redemptive and common good such that people don't realize that Okay, they'll, they'll think like, okay, if I'm, if I'm really into caring for the poor, if I'm really into the environment, those are liberal issues. And if I go down that path, I'm going to mm -hmm. get contaminated. Yeah. I just need to focus on preaching the gospel and converting souls. And it's not an either or, it's a yes. both and, yes. right? And the, the, the problem is that so long as we sustain that, and we know that the church is having, in general, is going the wrong direction. It's decreasing in terms mm -hmm. of numbers and influence in the United States. And it's this really unfortunate scenario where we don't have the, the right level of social capital because people don't see, the world doesn't see the city on a hill, the world mm -hmm. doesn't see our good works so we can glorify mm -hmm. the, the Father in heaven, right? Yeah. And so because of that, that fundamental deficiency, it's hard to hear the message of redemption. Yeah. And 
it, when people walk by a church, they don't think that's where the action is. Mm. They think it's quaint. Do people still do that? Yeah. How, how, how neat that you can have lemonade and cookies with some old ladies after. But people just don't believe that that's yeah. fundamentally where the, the answers are to the world's problems. Mm. Whereas if you really understand the sweep of particularly, I love the book of Matthew, uh, but the New Testament in general, the, the Sermon on the Mount has the answer to all of the world's major problems, whether it's sex trafficking, poverty, war, divorce and broken homes. Yeah. It's all there. Yeah. It's all there. And if we could actually put that into practice internally and with our, our finances, we would suddenly have the differentiation, the compelling, winsome differentiation to be able to have people to hear the redemptive message. Yeah. And so I think it's a, it's a massive area of unmet need. And so Eventide plays a small part in trying to be holistic about bringing together the values of, of Jesus that he, he espouses with our dollars, with our investing dollars. So yeah. for internal harmony and coherence, as well as for, for external change and yeah. for making a, 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 an attempt to improve the common good. So let me throw you a softball here, but I think it's a genuine question that, that sincere Christians, young, old, and everything in between still probably have a hard time answering. I realize on one side there's something great about the opportunity in a capitalist society to grow wealth and those kind of things, and I want to do that. Mm -hmm. But I also have no idea how that squares with this sort of call to be the poor in spirit Mm -hmm. or this call not to be materialistic. In one Mm -hmm. sense, obviously, we want to be wise in investing. But how does this – how do we sort of square this circle with – but we're not trying to love – we're not trying to to create our own little kingdoms here. Um, We want to invest in things eternal. So how do you you talk to customers and clients about that very thing? We want to be fundamentally Christian, loving what God loves, while also being wise with our material goods. It's it's a great question, and it's one that we have to be mindful of the the blinding effect of wealth. I mean, it's, it's widely known that wealth is something that the more you have, the more your heart gets hard, and yeah. it just has all kinds of negative effects. We see that in scriptures, the parable of rich man and Lazarus. Others would be examples of that. One of the one of the paradigms that I would commend to someone here, it, I think it actually began with Wesley, but people have picked it up since then. It's the concept of we try to figure out what is our true our true minimal set of needs here. So I remember when I was in college, I was part of InterVarsity, the campus fellowship, and we were doing a Bible study and uh, of this passage where people go to John the Baptist, and they ask him what repentance is. And one of the lines he says is, you who have two tunics should give to the one who has none. Mm-hmm. And that cut me to the heart. Like, I just thought, whoa, you who have two tunics must give to the one who has none. So I opened my closet. I had more than two tunics in my closet. <laughs> and I just said, like, I got to yeah. give this stuff away. I got to, like, radically downscale my lifestyle if I'm going to be even even at the John the Baptist level of repentance, right? This isn't even getting into, like, the high call of the Sermon on the Mount, things like that. This is, like, the forerunner of Jesus. And, and so I, at the time, I had a part-time job at World Vision where my dad used to work. And so I would see the pictures of the starving children and the needy children who lived in Africa and parts of the developing world. And I realized this is not a temporary, that was not some temporary command for the first century. Mm. And no matter how we would try to explain it away, and I know people try to explain it away, it's just love your neighbor. Mm. It makes yeah. so much sense, right? Yeah. And so to do that with our clothing, 
our, 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 our housing, our cars. There's a, there's a passage, people hate this passage, but the, the early church emphasized this a lot, where Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, um, where he, he doesn't want people to have gold, pearls, and expensive clothes. Mm-hmm. How about that? Yeah. Gold, pearls, and expensive clothes. And um, if you read people like Chrysostom and Tertullian and, and others, you'll, they, they took that at face value and yeah. they put that into practice. And yeah. Christians were known for when they converted, all of a sudden, they simplified. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is that, a, is that an association we have today? It's generally not, at least in the U.S. So, so I would say the starting point it should be our own personal lifestyle. And to, to say, like, I'm, I'm repenting of excess. I'm repenting of the, frankly, the hedonism that's, that's mm. all around us. So that's number one, is, is getting to that point. And secondly, is putting yourself in a community of people that are doing that as well. So I've seen this time and time again. If you try to do this alone, it's, it'll work for a little while, but you're going to get pulled back into mm. the, the average of your group there. And so we need to be in places where we are personally walking with, in our own churches, the poor. And I personally have put myself in a, in a church context where a lot of people don't have a lot of money. Mm. And that's, that's how I want to be. And there's no way I could drive a fancy car. There's no way I could live in a fancy house mm. because it would be so out of step with how everybody else lived mm. that it would just be, be terribly awkward. So, so those are the first steps there. Now, then once we figure out what that is, now we're, we're making whatever amount we're doing. And there's a line from Randy Alcorn who says, Figure out what your standard of living could be, that minimal amount, and then above that, raise your standard of giving, not your standard of living. Mm, that's good. That we, we want to just be as radical in giving as we possibly can. Now, is there room for something like trying to buy a house? Yes, there is. But Or starting a business? Yes, there is. But it should be goal-directed. You should say, okay, like I'm trying to, to save X amount for this amount, as opposed to just piling up money for an unclear reason. Yeah. Uh, I'm, this will sound really crazy being in the finance world, I'm, I'm even skeptical about how biblical the concept of retirement is. Mm. You know, the, yep. the way that for most of history things worked was that your children were your 401k account, your, your community was your 401k account, and people used to associate a large family with wealth yeah. because they'd say, wow, you, you got all these children going to take care of you when you're older. And we're so individualistic now that it's like, oh, I got to get you know X number of millions of dollars so I can do this and so I can go golf in Florida. Well, it's like, how much of that is actually part right. of the biblical narrative? It's not. Right. And so I don't have visibility into who invests in our funds. And so I say this uh, in, in, at the high level principle here is because I, I genuinely don't know what, who owns what in our funds. It's, a, it's kind of a, a master account that I manage. But Probably there's a lot of people, even who are investors in our own fund, that should redeem that and give it away to the poor, and I would be happier than collecting fees on that. Mm. And so I think this is one of the major, major, major areas of blindness and weakness that we have in the West. You know, we, we live in the most prosperous country in all of history. How likely is it that greed is a problem? It's pretty yeah. likely that, yeah. that there's a lot of greed that we just don't see because of the blindness that's associated. So I want to restate, take all that that you just said, which mm-hmm. I found a few more book nuggets that you okay. said, like the treasure principle, yep. uh, Randy Alcorn. Yep. There was one or two others that I'm not thinking of now, but um, is, it, is it accurate then to take everything that you just said and to principalize it to some degree as, first of all, to be wealthy and to be a Christian is not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. However, would you say then, but if you do have uh, means, if you do have wealth, or if you're growing in wealth, one, always pursue simplicity mm-hmm. and surround yourself with that kind of simplicity. Mm-hmm. 
and beware of extravagance, mm-hmm. of any, especially, especially kind of purposeless growth and extravagance. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. as you said, if you're saving for a business and that business is unto a particular end, or you're, you're investing, I'm making this one up, but you're investing in a 529 plan so that your kids can pay to go to college mm-hmm. or whatever the case is, but beware of sort of purposeless and just sort of bragging rights try, type of wealth uh, accruing and, and extravagance. Is that, that's, that close to that's what you're a great, That's a great summary. And, and I would add maybe one more point there is that beware when money is like a security for you, when yeah. it's just like, okay, yeah. that's, I just, I think the fundamental mistake in that is that money has become, can become a form of shelter when our security, of course, should be number one in God, but to the degree that it's in anything on, on earth, it should really be ideally in our communities, right? Mm. That we're going to take yeah. care of one another and help one another there. And I mean, this connects to a lot of other themes here that is probably beyond our scope, but of individualism versus collectivism. Yeah. But but in general, I think that is a, is a more biblically robust notion. Mm. So let's go back to um, Finney of the 90s mm-hmm. in graduate school. Mm-hmm. If you, instead of your mom, were back talking to the Finney of the 90s and saying, hey, are you interested in the house? And you were saying, yeah. What kind of advice would you give to that Finney about, okay, here's how to set yourself up, one, for just good investing, but then two, the kind of cultivation of character that would be needed mm-hmm. to produce the virtues that you're pursuing here. Yeah, so the 90s didn't have a lot of options. It's a very different <laughs> world now, so I'll assume it's somebody who's that age now. Today, it's a very different world that we live in, that there's a lot of great options in the investing world. So I would say, okay, figure out first the neighborhood you're going to be, what kind of roughly how much you're going to need here. So assuming a standard mortgage, you're probably going to put 20% down, something like that. Try to find the area where the blue-collar people live, the immigrants live, mm-hmm. where that all cities have some area like that. Go there. Don't don't go where it's it's fancy and all that. So figure out where that area is. Try to find a church there or start a church that's going to be in that area. Get a sense of that. So there's your number there, right? Yeah. And so now you're going to be investing what you can uh, to get there after you've done your your giving. I'm I'm an advocate that although we're not bound by a Old Testament tithe concept. I think that's that's not mm-hmm. uh, a great hermeneutic, but at least it's a a principle of, yeah. of like something that should be sacrificial. C.S. Lewis said, "I can't tell you how much you should give, but I, sh- I can tell you this: give more than you can afford." Mm. It should be something where you're feeling it. There's like a pinch that, yeah. like, oh, I would have I would have done this, but I had to I had to give yeah. there, right? So you do that, and I would say find somebody who is truly values aligned with you, Hmm. not who is virtue signaling. You know, we live in a world today where there are so many fun companies that label themselves as ESG or Impact or whatever. It's become the cool bandwagon for people to jump on. For people like me who can look under the hood at what's going on at places like that, frankly, it's just a lot of it is marketing. Hmm. And it's a lot of people realizing, oh, if we slap this label on, we'll get some millennials who are going to invest our way. But they don't really share the same values. And... It's hard to me, for me to believe that like five years ago, all of a sudden everybody's like, oh yeah, we're changing our heart on all these matters. Right. You know, it's, it's not that. Uh, so I would say find someone personally or organizationally that you're very well aligned with, that you feel is very faithful to the biblical witness mm-hmm. about money mm-hmm. and, and invest in, in, in something like that. Generally speaking, I tell most people not to invest on their own. It's, it's so much work and time mm-hmm. and stress. Yeah. And frankly, it's just, it, it's a distraction. Like we, we ought to be, most of us ought to be not paying attention to the markets and things like that. It's just, it's an unnecessary stress. You're way better off setting that amount 
making an automatic and then maybe once a year or every couple of years, look at what you've got and yeah. just set it and forget it. Yeah. And then after a few years, you'll be, you'll, your life, your quality of life will be much higher. You'll be more focused on the things that really matter the most, yeah. God and the people around you. And the amount of medications that you're prescribed would probably be less <laughs> if, you're that, not, if you're not watching that there, thing. There's a, a reason basis. why suicide rates are so high with yeah. day traders. And there's a reason that the, it's just such a terrible mm-hmm. existence to have because you're, you're attaching your emotions to what is so fickle and outside of your control. Yep. And why, why would you want to do that? It, yeah. it just, it's not a healthy way to live. So this season of our podcast, mm-hmm. uh, Finney, every, every one of our podcasts, we're ending with um, a question about spiritual formation. So we've, we've had a particular emphasis this year. So with this conversation, what kind of application points would you make about this conversation about the intersection between faith and wealth or faith and money, faith and income, and our spiritual formation? What would you say? Yeah, I'd say a couple things. So we were talking about that treasure principle um, there where, you know, the the key insight is where Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He doesn't say where your heart is, there your treasure is, which Mm -hmm. is the expected Mm -hmm. answer, right? That's how I would have said it. It's like, yeah, where your heart is, there your treasure is. But Jesus is actually telling us where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, which means that if you want to move your heart, you move your treasure. Right? So if you want to become a person who's, if you use a hypothetical example, let's say somebody were to tell you, like, I want you to care a whole lot about Burundi. Most people would say, where in the world is Burundi? <clears throat> well, now I'm going to tell you, okay, you're going to buy a plane ticket there. You're going to spend a month out of a year there. You're going to get to know Burundian families. Well, guess what? After some time, you're going to start to care about Burundi. You're going to live, yeah. right? Yeah. And so that's an example of moving the treasure of your time and your money to Burundi. And now all of a sudden your heart <clears throat> is going to follow. In the same way, if, if we can have people to say, okay, move your money to the poor, move your money, whatever investment that is reasonable, to the places that are actually aligned with your values and follow them, study them. I, one of the things that we have done is we've done a partnership, this is all public, with, uh, with World Vision and the Vision Fund. And we have some great stories that I would love for people to follow mm-hmm. about this is how our investing capital is actually going out to help the global poor through sustainable business. It's the best solution to global poverty is to find existing businesses that want to grow their headcount, give them capital, and allow them to, to bring in other people into that. It's an amazing model. And spend some time, spend, not, not in the worrying about what's the PDE ratio and these things, but let me understand just a little bit about what's going on with my investments. And all of a sudden, you'll care more and more about yeah, it. Yeah. And, and hopefully, your heart will move more into the direction of caring about the common good and issues that you otherwise probably would have neglected. Yeah, that's fantastic. Last thing as we wrap up, how can people follow you and your work and maybe, maybe even Eventide? You mentioned some of these stories you want them to follow. So where would you point people to learn more about these things? Yeah, we have a, a website, Eventide. Uh, eventidefunds.com that anybody can go to. You could subscribe there to our our information and we have a YouTube channel and we're on LinkedIn, all those normal places. So I would say that would definitely be the starting point there. Okay. We we put out a lot of great material and and um, I hope that I hope that in general, whether or not people care about Eventide or not, they they will start to think more deeply about the, the expression of their faith into their finances mm, yeah. so that there, there's, again, just much more of a holistic integration of who we are as Christians. Amen. Finney, thank you for your time today. You're very welcome. Great. Good to be with you.
And now it's time for On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where professors or staff at Southeastern share what they're reading right now. Dr. Quinn, what's on your bookshelf right now? Thanks, Nathaniel. I just reviewed a book uh, for a Union University periodical that they'll be putting out soon. It's by a Union University professor named Phil Davignon. I, I think I'm saying that right. It's D-A-V-I-G-N-O-N. So I assume it's Phil Davignon. He's a sociology professor there at Union. The title of his book is Practicing Christians, Practical Atheists. The subtitle is How Cultural Liturgies and Everyday Social Practices Shape the Christian Life. Again, the title is Practicing Christians, Practical Atheist. It's published by Cascade Books. It's just come out this year, about 140 pages, a relatively short book. And what uh, what Phil does in this book is he kind of builds upon the work of especially someone like Jamie Smith, who James K.A. Smith over the last decade has really given us a fresh imagination and a fresh vocabulary for understanding how our rhythms in culture and our rhythms in the world serve like liturgies. We think about liturgies as kind of the order of services in our Sunday morning worship. And what Jamie Smith has done has helped us to see, actually, we're all practicing liturgies, even in, even in our everyday and ordinary lives. And those liturgies form us in certain values. They form us in certain directions. They form us to be either more materialistic or less materialistic. They form us to be more busy and more kind of utilitarian or to be less busy and a little more in, in tune to God's gratuitous gift of his world. Um, and so what Phil does is he he takes a lot of that insight from Jamie Smith, as well as building upon some of the insights from someone like Charles Taylor, um, and then turns that towards just helping us from a sociological perspective, helping us to see how we too are being formed and shaped in many ways, deformed by culture, especially just by kind of just by kind of swimming the streams of culture rather than recognizing how that culture is forming and deforming us from Christian perspective. Um, so I don't want to deep dive too much, but uh, I think to hit the high points, uh, I think chapter one of the book, after he introduces what he's about to do, chapter one of the book is probably worth the the cost of the book as a whole. Uh, but then he also, he takes that to sort of set up what he's trying to argue, and he, he leans in on John Paul II, Pope John Paul II's language of the culture of death, which Pope John Paul said, he said, uh, talking about modern culture as a culture of death, which by that he means it has lost contact with God's wise design. Pope John Paul goes on to say that as a result of that, you see people living, at least in the in the modern West, you see people living as though God doesn't exist. And David Yon sort of sort of pays attention to that and then takes specific areas of our lives, such as education, such as work, consumption, leisure, and rest. And he just evaluates, is it true that uh, this sort of culture of death has actually been baked into even the way that we participate in these sort of cultural rhythms and liturgies? And if so, let's identify a few things that are deforming us and, and sort of shaping us away from the gospel. And then let's evaluate some things that we can actually turn back towards and be very intentional to swim against the stream of culture on these things. So uh, to give a couple of specific examples, one of the, the things that pointed out or that it stood out most to me um, in the chapter on consumption, David Yon brings back the notion of Eucharist or what we Baptists typically call the Lord's Supper. And he has this table on page 61 where he talks about the Eucharist versus the anti-Eucharist of consumer culture. And just kind of on a side-by-side, play-by-play type of here's what the, the Eucharist or the Supper is forming in us as Christians. And then here's what consumerism is doing that fundamentally undermines that kind of Eucharistic approach to life. Um, another example is... Um, 
he talks about in, in the chapter on leisure and rest, he says that we need to we need to reclaim this monastic practice, ancient monastic practice of stability. It, it combats this uh, this uh, uh, vice of sloth or laziness. And in a culture where relocation is very easy and shallow spirituality is present, he says Christians must recognize the wisdom of rooting in a specific place with specific people allowing them to slowly cultivate a prayerful attentiveness to God and others that would not be possible if they continually flee to more desirable circumstances. And he says, by reclaiming this monastic practice of stability, it reminds me of one of the the monastics, the ancient monastics, um, who would often say, go back to your cell, it will teach you everything you need to know. And I think about especially young folks that are in, in, in millennials and earlier and younger um, that are that are in our seminaries, colleges, churches, etc. Who it's it's like they don't know how to sit still. You have to change your station in life every three to four years. And I think that we might could learn something from just go back to your cell. The Lord may be teaching you something in that station of life that you're not going to learn if you stay on the move. So a lot more that we could say about uh, Devin Yon's book. But practicing Christians, practical atheist. His, his point with that that practical atheist piece is he's saying, even though we claim to be Christian, we have been so formed and continue to be so deformed by these cultural liturgies that actually we are claiming one thing with our mouths as Christians, but in practice, we're just atheistic. Um, and, you know, it's not a brand new idea. And I think the strength of Davignon's book is not that it's that it's all brand new ideas, but he synthesizes them and accentuates this point about practical atheism in ways that are really, really fresh. Thank you for that book recommendation, Dr. Quinn, and thank you all for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, subscribe to the podcast, give us that five-star rating and brief review on your favorite podcast platform, share it with a friend. Most of all, again, with our giveaway happening right now, go to uh, the link in the show notes, uh, tell us your thoughts, vote for your favorite episode, and be entered to win a whole stack of books and some other Center for Faith and Culture swag. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.